What's behind posting the Ukraine flag on your social media to virtue signal to the world? What's behind all of that? Um, it is globalism run amok, and it is the belief, the incredibly arrogant, conceited, condescending belief that the foreign policy elites of the United States, and really just the elites broadly of the United States, believe um, that they can micromanage the affairs of the world using your tax dollars, using your military, and using your sons and daughters who are put at risk of even death to manipulate and micromanage the world in a way that they choose. This is Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. Steve Cortez. A lot of folks simply don't realize that the problems in their life, the problems in our society, can actually be traced back to globalism. When I was a young man, I was one of six children. My father didn't make a lot of money. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood where most families supported themselves on a single income. Uh, not in luxury, but comfortably in the United States. That is simply impossible for the vast majority of Americans today. So something changed, and, and we hardly talk about it. Right? It changed dramatically, you know, just in my lifetime. As a former Wall Street guy, I believe in evidence and data. The political world is full of sloganeering. Uh, it's full of a lot of folks who make very grandiose statements, but don't back or cite those statements with evidence, with evidence and data. When that orange guy came down the escalator, he won me over, largely with his uh, correct assessment that globalism was harming Americans, particularly China. Uh, he saw it and he indicted it. And he and I spoke many times about trade issues, about globalism more broadly. When, when, when we view what is happening to us, when we view the injustices and the outrages that are happening in society, we need to look behind the surface level. Many of the ills that afflict this country can be traced back directly to globalism. Housing affordability, it has never been worse the globalists don't believe in strong borders. They see cheap labor. This sick and demented idea that children should have their sexuality, their, their sex changed permanently. It's super important for us to see when, when, there's, when there's an injustice, when there's an abuse, when there's a crisis. What is behind the crisis? Who is behind the curtain? So in your annual, annual letter, one of the points that you make, and I think this may be the, the point that's gonna get the most attention when this letter comes out, is that there is a nationalist case for globalism. Very important topic right now, not only in the United States, but in Europe. Did he just say that? A nationalist case for globalism? All right, let's go back. In other parts of the world, let's hear your nationalist case for globalism. Yeah, so if you disengage from the world, the instability in terms of uh, those economies, uh, diseases that can spread globally very quickly, there's lots of reasons why that's going to hurt you. And so even if you say that the normal sort of empathetic humanitarian reasons of all lives have equal value and you, it bothers you that young children are dying in those countries, even if you zero that out, my view is that the impact per dollar of the aid, which in the case of the US uh, is you know, not even half a percent of the budget, uh, that as General Mattis has said, that if you don't fund the aid budget, you'll have to spend more money on bullets. And 
that case that, you know, getting Vietnam to develop, and so we no longer think of it as, you know, a place we need to send soldiers to. Now it's actually done well enough, it's graduating as an aid recipient, that is, its domestic resources are funding things. Okay. <laughs> I can't take any more of, uh, of globalist Bill Gates. Globalist Gates telling us that there's a, quote, nationalist case for globalism. Uh, no, there is not. But let me attack several of the false premises uh, that he promoted right there. One is that, it, and notice he didn't outright state this, but it's certainly implied that you're only empathetic, he used that term, you're only empathetic if you're globalist. So you only care about sickness in Asia and Vietnam or you know, somewhere else uh, if you're globalist. Um, no. Um, I care about all of humanity because they are children of the same God who created me. Uh, that's why, not because I'm a globalist, I'm quite a nationalist, as a matter of fact. And by the way, nationalism, I believe, is totally ordained from God, from that creator. The, the, the scriptures talk again and again about the nations of the world. Nations are a good thing. They are a positive. They are, they are the order uh, as established, not just by man, but in fact, by God. So you're not... You don't have to be a globalist to be empathetic. And in fact, I would argue quite the opposite, that globalists in reality, while they may use some of the terms of benevolence, are actually all about uh, uh, serving their own selfish self-interest. That, that is the reality, about their own self-aggrandizement. And certainly that is the case with somebody like Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a, is a fascinating and, in my view, incredibly harmful character. Um, in American society and in the world. By the way, I don't think he's ever really had to answer the very serious questions he should answer regarding his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. But even putting that aside, his promotion of globalism, uh, his constant propagandizing regarding vaccines and vaccine mandates make him one of the most unfortunately influential, uh, but also one of the most malicious actors in all of American society. And this idea, too, there, he, he gives us a false choice. You know, again, let's attack the, the false premises. He gives us a false choice that it's supposedly this binary, that we either fund uh, lavish foreign aid or we're going to have to go to war. Um, and that's just not reality. That's not reality at all, as a matter of fact. But the Washington war machine, which he supports, the Washington war machine wants us to believe that. The foreign policy establishment of the United States wants us to believe that. And in reality, what does the foreign policy establishment of the United States ultimately choose? It chooses both. It's not an either, either or. It chooses a massive foreign aid budget of the United States. For example, over $100 billion and counting to Ukraine right now to exacerbate and escalate a war that involves no discernible, definable U.S. national interest, an ethnic rivalry 6,000 miles away from the United States of two terrible corrupt countries, two terrible regimes, the Putin regime and the Zelensky regime, regime at war with each other over ancient ethnic rivalries, uh, a battle that has waged for centuries and will likely wage, wage for centuries further, which thankfully doesn't involve, if we just take a rational, sober look at it, doesn't involve any national interest of the United States. It's irrelevant to us. Yet, we get deeply involved. So the foreign policy establishment largely chooses both. What I mean by both is chooses the foreign aid and chooses to go to war, to intervene all over the globe 
And one of the primary drivers to bring this to politics, one of the primary drivers of the America First movement, of the patriotic populist nationalist movement, was a reaction against that constant interventionism all over the world, that war fighting everywhere, the, the, the cost to the United States, the human cost, the financial cost, um, has been horrendous, horrendous in the constant wars that were started by George W. Bush and then continued and in many cases accelerated by, uh, uh, by Barack Obama and Joe Biden, first as vice president, now as president. Those wars have cost trillions of dollars and tragically, most tragically, have resulted in the loss of thousands of American lives and ruined many thousands more lives of people who are still uh, living, thankfully, uh, but are gravely damaged mentally and or physically because of the effects of those terrible misbegotten wars of adventure, uh, particularly the invasion of Iraq, which we know did nothing to make America safer, ultimately had nothing to do with the attacks of 9-11, but had everything to do with rewarding defense contractors, big business, and unfortunately following the dictates of, of the Washington war machine and the foreign policy apparatus and establishment of the United States. And Bill Gates is very much in line, as evidenced by that clip, is very much in line in cahoots with that exact crowd. So no, Bill Gates. Uh, number one, I'd like you to answer questions about Epstein. Uh, I don't know that you did something evil, sinful, illegal there, but it sure seems like it. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of smoke. I don't know if there's fire or not, but you should be forced to answer those questions. Uh, but secondly, your idea that there is an American nationalist case for globalism? No, senor, <laughs> there is not, absolutely not. Uh, there's a nationalist case for an America first vision of America that believes in a foreign policy of realism and restraint, a foreign policy of realism and humility, rather than the hubris of treating the world as if it is some sort of chess game and the foreign policy elites of Washington, D.C. and their allies like Bill Gates uh, view this chess game uh, as, as their own, this chess board, as, as it were, um, as their own twisted game in which they can maneuver and manipulate the peoples of the world. Uh, first of all, that never works. It backfires massively. But secondly, even if it works at times, the, the, the cost, the financial and human cost for the United States is just far too dear and far too high to pay. So there is a nationalist case for nationalism, thankfully. Have you noticed, folks, that many leading figures on the left, if you go to their social media pages, for example, um, those profiles are littered with Ukraine flags, and, and often just Ukraine flags, not even a Ukraine flag alongside an American flag. Why? Because it has become a virtue signal. It has become a a symbol, a representation that I am a globalist uh, and that I care about Ukraine and that there's something among the ruling class, at least, certainly among media elites, big business, especially defense contractors when it comes to big business, that there's something noble about prioritizing the, uh, the about prioritizing the prerogatives of Ukraine rather than the prerogatives and interests of the United States. And realize that, that the globalists view themselves as being better than being patriotic. They look dismissively and derisively upon patriotism. They view enlightened American nationalism as jingoistic. Um, they view you as a rube if you believe in American nationalism. But here's the reality. 
even though they pretend to be sophisticates, they have made a mess of the world. They have made a mess of the world. And they have caused enormous human misery, both at home and abroad, through this constant war fighting and constant interventionism. The America First movement, in many ways, was a reaction exactly against this mindset and this worldview of warmongering and interventionism and placing America last in terms of priorities. Now, getting back to Ukraine, here is a situation where the United States insisted, unfortunately, on enlarging NATO all the way to the border of Russia, all the way to the Russian border, despite the fact that at the end of the Cold War, which America won, thank God, uh, we won it through decades and decades of perseverance, of guts, um, at, at great financial and at times human cost, right? We won the, gold, the Cold War. And part of the, of the peace, essentially, that was achieved at the end of the Cold War was a promise to Russia, a promise to the former Soviet Union, that we would not enlarge NATO to the east. Instead, we did exactly the opposite. Uh, we quite literally poked that bear. And by the way, when I say poke the bear, that doesn't mean that the bear is not dangerous and evil. Putin is. He's both of those things. Okay, Putin is not our friend. He's not somebody to be admired, but it also doesn't mean that we have to unnecessarily provoke uh, Russia. And it certainly does not mean that Ukraine has somehow become a 51st state of the United States because it is not. It is not America, and it is not even American in its ideals, uh, in its values, in its conduct. This is no friend of the United States. This is literally one of the most corrupt nations on the planet. It is in many ways far more similar to Russia and to Putin's regimes, the Zelensky regime is, than American elites would recognize or realize or admit. That is the reality. There is no good guy in this fight. And yet the United States, which again, in my view, largely instigated this most recent showdown, the United States because of Joe Biden's globalism, insists, with help from a lot of Republicans, insists on escalating what should be a regional battle of little importance to the United States, insists on escalating it into a global struggle. And that escalation receives the full support, the full support of American elites. This is one of the uh, one of the items, one of the agenda items, one of the issues where you see almost unanimous support, big business, Big media, uh, the administrative state, the permanent political class, actors, entertainers, all of them vastly in support of escalation in Ukraine. Let me give you another, you know, I mentioned um, entertainment. Like, let me give you uh, from the world of sports an example of this. Recently, the United States Open was played. Thrilling uh, contest in the United States. Well, there was a, a Russian in the men's final and there was a Belarusian in the women's final. And, uh, and the Belarusian lost, thankfully, to uh, Coco Goff, the American, who, uh, the young American who had a magnificent victory. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of politics involved in both of those matches. What I mean by that is both of their flags, the Russian flag and the Belarus flag, those flags were, were darkened. They, were, they disappeared. Uh, in tennis scoring, if you don't watch tennis, almost always the channels put the home country flag next to the name uh, in the score. So Coco Goff had an American flag. Um, and and uh, that's just how, how tennis is done. Uh, Novak Djokovic had a Serbian flag, but the Russian 
and the Belarus player, blank. It, it had been disappeared. Think about that. Think about what ESPN, which is a terrible politicized network, which I think has largely ruined pro sports. But think about what ESPN, part of Disney, uh, you know, maybe the most powerful big business media company in the world. Think about the message that they are sending. Your country does not exist because we don't believe in what it is doing right now uh, in Ukraine. By the way, I don't believe in what it's doing in Ukraine either, but that doesn't mean that Russia doesn't exist or that Belarus doesn't exist. And by the way, ESPN has no problem putting a Chinese flag up. Okay, so think about that contrast and the cognitive dissonance it takes to say, okay, we're against Minsk and against Moscow, but we're fine with Beijing. We're fine with that junta in, in Beijing, and we'll put that flag up. I mean, think of the, the warped mind that you have to have. It's, I mean, I'm laughing because it's laughable. It's absurd, right, to think that we can put China's flag on the score scoreboard, but no, not Belarus, not Russia, because they're evil. But China's not? Uh, the, perhaps the you know the most significant human rights abuser, not perhaps the most significant human rights abuser in the entire world, uh, China. And by the way, I'm not advocating by disappearing their flag either. Okay, it doesn't mean that they don't exist because they have an evil government. Uh, but my point is the worldview. You know what's behind that? What's behind hiding that flag? What's behind posting the Ukraine flag on your social media to virtue signal uh, to the world? What's behind all of that? Um, it is globalism run amok, and it is the belief, the incredibly arrogant, conceited, condescending belief that the foreign policy elites of the United States, and really just the elites broadly of the United States, believe um, that they can micromanage the affairs of the world using your tax dollars, using your military, and using your sons and daughters who are put at risk of even death to manipulate and micromanage the world in a way that they choose. It's wrong to even try, patriots, but also think about this, how wrong they get it, right? So they view the world as a chessboard, and through their arrogance, they believe that they can move these pawns around and that they can rearrange the world to their liking, except guess what? They're terrible chess players, okay? They shouldn't try it in the first place. It's wrong. It's wrong to try to use American power, um, to, to manipulate and micromanage the rest of the world. It's wrong to put America's best and brightest, our brave young patriots who serve in uniform, it's wrong to put them in harm's way except for a, a definable, uh, discernible, and, and defendable American interest. It's wrong to, to, to do, it's wrong to even try. But once they try, they also fail. They fail miserably time and time again. Now, thankfully, Donald Trump prevailed in 2016 largely because of this issue, because Americans were tired of constant war in Iraq and war in Afghanistan, tired of war fighting all over the planet, tired of spending American resources on a foreign aid budget that does no good for the United States, that has no definable return on investment for Americans. That's the, the reality. And that movement, it's not just about electing Donald Trump, that movement goes on and persists. Now, we're gonna, we have to keep fighting, clearly, because America's escalating a war, a needless, unnecessary war in Ukraine right now. So we, we must keep fighting for our principles. We must keep fighting for a worldview and a foreign policy of realism and restraint. Uh, we must oppose those who prefer a Ukrainian flag to the American flag or those who would, who would darken the flag of a, of a you know, supposed enemy nation during a sporting event. Uh, we must continue to oppose 
these forces. Uh, but ultimately, I do believe, thankfully, that the that the trend uh, since 2016, the trend is in our favor here. And uh, Americans, war-weary Americans, do not want to dive back into globalism and war fighting all over the planet. So listen, it's, it's a valid question to ask, well, wait a second, Cortez. Um, I care a lot about Ukrainians. And they had their country invaded by a bully next door. Uh, first invaded with the takeover of Crimea and now invaded additionally in this most recent uh, in incursion and invasion into Ukraine proper, or Ukraine outside of Crimea. It's a valid question. And here's my answer to that. Regarding the invasion of Crimea, it seems very clear that the majority, the supermajority of the people of Crimea want to be part of Russia um, and historically, of course, have been part of Russia. This part of the world, let me also just state this at the outset as a, as a premise. Um, this part of the world is incredibly complicated. You know, very rarely is there a pure good guy, bad guy showed out in the world, right? Very, very rarely does that happen. And that certainly is not the case here. And the border of Ukraine and Russia has been a moving and ill-defined border for a very long time. And these are two peoples who are deeply intertwined historically. Russia, in fact, began in Kiev, or Kiev as it's now called. Um, that is literally the, the birth of Russia before Moscow was the capital. And these two nations, these two peoples have been deeply intertwined, but also frequently at odds and, uh, and a high degree of animosity between the two. Um, recognize, for example, that several Ukrainians were the premiers of the Soviet Union. So uh, in many ways viewed themselves largely as one country, but in other ways viewed themselves as, as mortal ethnic enemies. So it's a highly complex situation. And in Eastern Ukraine, outside of Crimea, not including Crimea, uh, there are certainly a number of ethnic Russians who do want to be Russian. I'm not saying it's a majority, and I'm not saying that that justifies a Russian invasion. It, it does not. But here's what I would say. Thankfully, America has no vital U.S. national interest there. We just don't. This is not a part of the world that matters greatly to the United States. There's not a lot of relevance for the United States, thankfully, in this ancient ethnic rivalry in Ukraine. Now, we have made it, unfortunately, into a global war through our constant escalation by so aggressively funding the Ukrainian side, and not just funding the Ukrainian side, but actually acting in the war. Uh, there is certainly, a, uh, there are a lot of indications, we don't know for certain, but there are a lot of indications that there are U.S. troops on the ground, that there are special forces at work, and we know for certain that U.S. intelligence is working hand in glove actively in the war um, with the Ukrainians. So to a degree, we are already at war, uh, albeit not an openly hot war, but we are already at war with Russia. And over what? what? What is the U.S. interest that is at stake here? Um, now, regarding the Ukrainians and sympathy for and empathy for the Ukrainians and their plight, I agree. Regular Ukrainians, by the way, are the ones being treated the worst regarding this American escalation. They are the ones who are being sent to the front to fight and die in massive numbers in a war that does not need to be escalated. And in fact, I would argue if we used American diplomatic and economic power, if we used all of the influence of the United States, which is very significant, obviously, all over the world, we could achieve, if we were the leaders, not in escalating, but rather in negotiating, I firmly believe that the United States could bring a negotiated end to this war very, very quickly if we insisted upon it. So to me, that is the only valid 
American intervention is let's reach a negotiated peace. Let's reach a solution, a detente. Let's establish peace in Ukraine, which would be the most beneficial thing possible for the people of Ukraine, rather than offering this hollow sympathy while we escalate the very battle that is making their lives so very difficult. So I think you can have sympathy, you can have a valid human emotional attachment to people who have been invaded, to people who have been mistreated by Putin, and also recognize that what is best for them is not American interventionism other than to intervene on the diplomatic front and as, as a leader in negotiations. That is what would be best for the people of Ukraine and ultimately best, most importantly, for the people of the United States. And then also, I would argue, uh, to, to not include Ukraine in NATO as is now being planned, uh, something which is a totally needless provocation of Russia, totally needless, and will we'll, we'll make certain that Ukraine and Russia stay at odds for years and years to come. Even if there is a negotiated peace, even if we reach a peace in this current battle, if Ukraine is made a full member of NATO and receives the full guarantee of the United States, Article 5 protections, that it's essentially part of the United States when it comes to military self-defense, uh, that is such an aggressive provocation of Russia that it ensures that there will be far more strife and bloodshed in the future. So I would argue that, that um, a negotiated settlement is in the best interest of Ukraine and not enlarging any longer um, NATO is also in the best interest of the Ukrainian people. So um, during the Trump presidency, thankfully, we saw President Trump engage in no new wars, a, a stark contrast to his predecessors in office. Um, and, and by the way, a, a stark contrast to the bipartisan Washington war machine. Let me be clear, because war making and interventionism all over the world was not just a Democrat priority. It was Democrat and Republican establishment priority. And I view Bush and Obama and Biden all as basically equally culpable for needless, endless American wars all over the world. Donald Trump had a very different vision. And thankfully, from my extensive conversations with him, um, I know that he took it to heart, followed through on it, and not only did he not start new wars, but he wound down the disastrous wars that he inherited. So he inherited uh, full-scale American operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and aggressively um, de-escalated those situations and brought American troops and American material home. So Donald Trump very much followed through on his uh, America first vision of foreign policy that is rooted in realism and restraint. I, and listen, I'm very honest about Donald Trump. I think that he had some incredible successes. I think he had some very big misses, particularly when it comes to the virus and the lockdowns. But this is credit where it's due. Uh, this was a big win for the United States, the fact that we wound down these wars and started no new wars. I do not believe that it's coincidental that the Ukrainian situation escalated during the Biden, uh, uh, Obama-Biden administration, uh, became a place of, of calm during the Trump administration, and now re-escalated again uh, with Biden back in the White House, this time as president, of course, previously being vice president. And why I say it's not coincidental is, number one, uh, he and his cronies clearly believe in interventionism. They believe in this globalist warmongering all over the planet. But number two, and I think this is even more significant, is that Ukraine, one of the most corrupt nations on earth, 
but a, a place blessed with a lot of natural resources, particularly energy and agriculture, a place of unbelievable resources. So there's a, there's a lot of wealth. Now, it's not broadly dispersed at all. The Ukrainian people are very poor. Uh, but there's a lot of wealth controlled by a very small cadre of very corrupt people, of oligarchs in Ukraine. Those oligarchs from this incredibly corrupt country have been deeply connected to many of the most corrupt people in the West in politics and business, and very specifically to Joe Biden, right? So we know factually, this isn't supposition, it's not a theory, we know factually that Joe Biden's own son, was paid millions and millions of dollars by Burisma, a state-aligned energy company from Ukraine, and that that has been going on for many years, among other payments that he received from dirty foreign governments all over the world, including China and Russia as well. Um, but a lot of it flowed from Ukraine. That is factually known. What is also known is that in his own written statements, in his own texts and emails, uh, he said that he had to keep, quote, 10% for the big guy. Now, he did not name, uh, Hunter Biden did not name his father as the big guy, but Tony Bobolinsky, his business partner, did. On the record, his partner in dirty money deals with the Chinese Communist Party said the big guy, said on the record, the big guy is Joe Biden. And I think all of us intuitively know that the big guy is Joe Biden, but we got it actually verified by a totally credible source, firsthand account, from Tony Bobolinsky, somebody with an impeccable record in business, a Navy veteran, somebody with no self-interest in trying to go after Joe Biden, not involved in the political arena. In fact, when he was a small donor in politics, donated primarily to Democrat donors, not somebody with an ax to grind, but a patriot who came forward and told us that the big guy is Joe Biden. So let's connect the dots here. Ukraine sending millions of dollars to Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden sending 10% to the quote, big guy, meaning Joe Biden, uh, I think it is a very reasonable conclusion to determine that Joe Biden is totally compromised, totally compromised regarding China and totally compromised regarding Ukraine and has a self-interest, unfortunately, in, uh, and by the way, when I say compromise, perhaps compromise to the point of somebody who can be blackmailed. We don't know that, but it would be reasonable to suspect that there's blackmail material uh, held by some very dastardly people, Ukrainian oligarchs perhaps, over him. Uh, but also somebody who wants to do their bidding and wants to ensure, unfortunately, that this corrupt piggy bank that is Ukraine, that it continues to function as a cash machine for the, the corrupt politicians of the West. This is an issue not just for America, it's an issue for the UK, uh, for all of Western Europe. Uh, it's, it's a global issue. But for, for these globalist elites, uh, many of these ruling class people, Ukraine has been the place where they go to essentially find their payoffs um, and, and their dirty deals. And there's a lot of money there. There's a lot of money in that piggy bank. They want it protected. They don't want it uh, to come under the, the rule of Vladimir Putin. And so they insist on escalating this struggle and involving America into a battle uh, that has no vital US national security interest, but does in all likelihood have a very selfish interest of Joe Biden and his allies. Thankfully, um, looking at the, at the Republican contenders for the 2024 election, most of them uh, have taken an America first foreign policy view of Ukraine and believe in, in realism and restraint and do not want to further escalate. Not all of them. Uh, Nikki Haley is certainly the outlier in that regard. 
And I think she is the most aggressively globalist of the Republican candidates, which is not surprising. She served literally on the board of Boeing. Um, she and her husband have become fabulously wealthy with a lot of military contracting since she left office, since she left her ambassadorship to the United Nations for Donald Trump. So she is a committed globalist. She is not somebody, even though she was Trump's UN ambassador, she's not somebody who subscribes to um, a patriotic populist worldview at all, does not subscribe to a Trumpian worldview at all. Um, and she has been thoroughly globalist in her campaign. So she has been at least consistent. She's inconsistent about a whole lot, especially anything regarding Donald Trump. Um, but she has at least been consistent. I'll give her that much, I guess. Consistent in her wrongness on interventionism and Ukraine. Now, thankfully, as I said, most of the Republican field, though, um, is taking a much more realpolitik view and recognizing that there's no vital U.S. national security interest there in Ukraine. Um, I think in this regard, Ron DeSantis, who I'm supporting for president, has been particularly solid. I would note, by the way, that he is the only U.S. veteran in the entire race on either side, Republican or Democrat, was something that is very notable and I think you know for which he should be lauded that after 9-11, he was a young man coming out of Harvard Law School, could have gone to a big New York law firm and made a boatload of money with his uh, big degree and, and, and top credentials, but instead put on the uniform of the United States and decided to serve America, motivated at least in part because of what happened to this country during 9-11 and was, was deployed with the Navy SEALs to Iraq. So um, has credibility on, on any of these issues regarding military adventurism, adventurism, interventionism, and, um, and has you know, skin in the game as somebody who served, who was in, in harm's way. Thankfully, he is of the, of the view that, um, that this, if this is a problem beyond the borders of Ukraine, it is a problem to be uh, taken care of by the Europeans. And that's an, a critically important aspect to this. Um, the wealthy nations of Western Europe, first of all, they have shirked their responsibility for decades, right? They have not been spending what they are committed, what they themselves have, have pledged to spend on military budgets to be significant contributors to the NATO alliance. Instead, what they have done um, is they have luxuriated uh, in, the, in the promise and the, in the benevolence of the United States and our commitment to defend them, um, allowing them uh, unfortunately, to uh, to dismiss what should be their responsibility first. And these are countries which, of course, we saved not once but twice in the last century in World War I and World War II, um, which we uh, very charitably rebuilt following World War II and have become, thankfully, very thriving, rich democracies. They should be fully capable of putting on their big boy pants and defending not just themselves and not just funding their own defense, to the level that they promised to do so, but in addition uh, to, you know, as it were, take care of their neighborhood. Uh, this is not our neighborhood. This is the, we, we, uh, if we have security problems in Latin America, in the Caribbean, we don't ask Europe to come and help us. No, because we are a big, prosperous country with a significant military, and we can handle those regional problems on our own. It is our neighborhood to take care of. Well, the same is true, and I know that may sound simplistic, but it's true. Uh, the same is, is correct for Europe. The nations of Western Europe, number one, should be meeting their obligations. They should be exceeding their obligations. I mean, just, just out of thanks to the United States for what we have done for them for so long. They should be meeting and exceeding their obligations to the NATO alliance. And, and then secondarily, any uh, funding, any intervention in Ukraine that is necessary, and I question how necessary any of it is, but if it is necessary, 
It should not be coming from the United States. It should be coming from the region, from the leading countries of the region. It should be Italy and France and the UK and Netherlands and Germany, all of them wealthy, advanced nations, all of them in the neighborhood, uh, all of them fully capable, if they had the will, um, to manage that situation on their own without relying on the American people who are literally an ocean away. So that is the reality of Ukraine. And thankfully, as I said, thankfully, Republican voters are, are largely um, coming around to this, this point of view. And other than Nikki Haley, the Republican field is generally pretty good um, on Ukraine and pretty good on a, on a populist nationalist approach to Ukraine. And I think Ron DeSantis, most of all, has incredible credibility and the, and the correct take on this issue.